This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. Tonight I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas Josh Nelson sends his apologies, but good evening, Cerise and Alex. Hello. Good evening, Thomas and Alex. We're going to be talking about three films tonight. Uh, we're going to we, we're doing something we haven't done in a really long time. Actually, we're doing two retrospective titles. So later on the show, we're going to discuss the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, a 1964 French film, and we're continuing our look at the films of Martin Scorsese. So tonight, we're going to touch on Casino, his 1995 gangster film. The third in his very loose trilogy of gangster films, I suppose. But we're going to start off with Money Monster. This is the new feature film by Jodie Foster. It's her fourth film as director, and only her second as director where she hasn't also acted. The film stars George Clooney as Lee Gates, a flamboyant and self-absorbed host of the financial advice television show... Money Monster. It also stars Julia Roberts as Patty Fenn, the show's long-suffering director. While live on air one day, Lee is taken hostage at gunpoint by Kyle Budwell, a young man who has recently lost all his savings due to taking Lee's advice on an investment that unexpectedly has gone bad. Now, Kyle is played by Jack O'Connell, who was the lead in Startup and 71, both films we have discussed on this show and films that we liked and liked him in especially. So Money Monster, I'm going to say, is sort of a dog day afternoon for the post-GFC and 24 News Cycle era. At least that's what I think it seems to be aspiring to be. Alex, you and I are the only ones who caught this film. What did you make of it? What do you think of my dog day afternoon yeah, comparison? I, I think, I mean, I, th- I think there's something about the opening of this film that really invites you to start making these parallels. Like, you kind of know the setup. Even just from the trailer, I think it gives you an indication. I was coming in thinking of things like network, um, you know, this kind of very abrasive, aggressive um, kind of TV, larger than light kind of tabloid guy who who kind of almost takes a Bullworth turn. You know, it's, it's, he's sort of forced to start telling the truth. So I was thinking about films like, like Bullworth and, and Network. They were the really big ones that were coming to my, to my mind in the opening moments. I, I was really excited about seeing this. I do really like Foster, not just as a performer, but also as a director, even though she hasn't done that much. Um, I, I have to say I give this film massive points. The first 10 minutes, I thought this is for me because it had both a really great little reference to William Castle's film with Joan Crawford's Straight Jacket, which is, frankly, all I ever need to be <laughs> happy, and also a pretty, I was going to say, I'm, no, I'm going to say it, a pretty solid dick joke. Oh, yes, I had to think about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, There is some good um, penile humour. Yeah, like, and I think it's a really brave thing in 2016 <laughs> to open a, a drama action film with a really good dick joke, and I, I, I admire... And I admire Foster's balls for doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird moment because it is used for a dramatic setup that kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Like it's it, it, it peters out way sooner than expected. It's sort of flaccid humour, really. By the end, <laughs> this is just. Can we just start the whole show over again? Alex has brought the dick jokes in way too early. <laughs> but yeah. I see I'm not needed for this. I mean, obviously I haven't seen the film anyway, but I, I'm just not needed right now. Look, I really I really do like the setup for this film and the first sort of half hour, 40 minutes, I was really with it and I thought, you know, this is going to go somewhere really interesting and there's one point, 
I, I think it's about 30 minutes. It's, it's when the, the, um, the invader, his, uh, his partner is brought in to talk to him and the allegiance of the George Clooney character changes quite dramatically and we start getting um, a kind of... The, the kind of Nancy Drew work in this film is done between two women that I think make a very inexplicable bond that just doesn't really make sense to me. And it, the film kind of lost me, I think, halfway through. Um, it really just felt like one of those projects that was probably really... I mean, I think one of the script writers was, um, you know stakeout stakeout too this is somebody with you know not not that i'm saying they're great films but somebody with pretty good genre clout you know pretty good genre experience it just felt like a kind of too many cooks spoil the broth is that the phrase yeah yeah absolutely. if they were cooking broth i'm sure that it would be it, it just it just went weird it, it just doesn't went weird. all quite work does it i i was really quite on board with this film for for a lot of its running time but um it gets sillier and sillier, and and you know, we've spoken a lot about the, on this show about how we need to appreciate a film for what it is, and, and nitpicking is a terrible thing for critics to do. But I found, in terms of the way they portrayed the making of live television, the way they portrayed the working of the financial sector, and the way they portrayed police work, all those things got too silly for me. And and I'm not an expert in any of those. Um, but but the suspension of disbelief I had really really lost me, especially the, the third act. I mean, most of this film has a single setting. When they move beyond that single setting, it gets a bit farcical. And I think there is a moment towards the end where they try to bring it back to a kind of more serious moment again. But it, it gets, it does get terribly silly. I think you're exactly onto something here because I think the problem with that for me is that the material at stake, it, it's almost like it chickens out. It, it sets up. It's dealing with really serious real world issues and then it just kind of freaks out and just backpedals a little a little bit there's a real nervousness and it's like okay we'll just resort to a kind of genre cliche we're not really we're just going to do a kind of good guys bad guys thing we've opened up this this pandora's box we really have no idea how to manage the material that we that we're dealing with there's an article coming out on uh 4-3 film online in a couple of days which is which got mentions it goes into details about the um the financial backing, like this is one of the things I was really interested in about this film was it, its weird relationship to big business. It just sort of seems to, you know, it's sort of one step forward, two steps back. And one of the main funders for Sony, who um, is, a, I believe it's a guy called um, John Graken, who's involved with something called Lone Star Capital. I mean, this is a guy who's a really famous vulture capitalist. So, he, you know, the people kind of bankrolling this film are precisely the kind of people that the film's out to kind of attack and you feel that tension watching the film and that it it's trying to say something but it's not really quite sure what that might be and there's there's a lot of wonderful uh Clooney bluster and bravado in this film he's so perfectly cast you know he carries so much of of the energy of this film but he kind of collapses into a sort of bizarro McAuliffe Mm-hmm. halfway through like it just mm. becomes very strange and i really didn't know what where to go or what it was doing i i just got a little lost to its credit what i liked about it is i do think it does expose the dodgy behavior of the financial regulation we're not exposed but it certainly presents it as a problem um in a way that i thought was actually a little bit more effective than say the film 99 homes now 99 homes is a far superior film but at the time we talked about our disappointment that the bad guys in that film ended up 
engaging in criminal activity, whereas so much of what happened in the GFC and people losing their houses was to do with completely legal behaviour. In this film, the so-called villain is working within the boundaries of the law, and I really like the film, the, the fact that the film didn't compromise that. It stuck to the idea that everything he did was appalling, but it was still, you know, the, the, the lack of regulations in the financial and the housing industries allowed him to do this. So I did like that. But yeah, the film starts with a, a very exciting, tense sense of danger and, and even ideological danger where I wasn't too sure where it's going to go. You know, a gunman arrives, he, he makes Clooney wear this jacket uh, covered in explosive. It straight away evokes all very distressing imagery of contemporary terrorism and he starts spouting sort of you know 99 versus one percent type stuff and talking about how how the media is all corporate owns out to get to you and he, he's talking a lot of sort of left-wing ideology but in the persona of this crazy man and i sort of nervously and excitedly shifted in my seat thinking oh, where's this going to go um and the film does gradually get you to sympathize with him which is why it made me think of dog day afternoon because in that film the criminals become the sympathetic characters and we see that the counterculture is being oppressed um and i was wondering how they're going to navigate that with this very violent man who looks like a terrorist but he's sort of yeah preaching what a lot of us a lot of us feel and maybe even doing something that we would all like to do but very quickly the film descends into sort of a lame kind of sort of a buddy cop type type idea and yeah, the, the, the confrontation with the um the girlfriend that happens in the film also raised the possibility of some very edgy explorations of gender like i thought this was going to go all kind of um um, you know, he was going to be demasculated. And mm-hmm. is that yep. a word? Did I use a correct word there? That's really close to a word. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it's more than a word. There is a word in there. What's the, the word I'm looking for? I think just emasculated. Emasculated. <laughs> Double plus unmasculated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he does get this kind of absolute, very public humiliation by by a woman. And and I think actually the way the film kind of then shows us his response to that is part of what actually draws a lot of sympathy to him because we see that actually he isn't a douche bro there's a bit more more to him but but again that all got a little bit lost it's um that, this yeah. film just got a bit generic that was precisely the moment where i thought this film that was the point where it could either become something really amazing or something really really ordinary um it's like that was the moment that's like what is this film going to do and it really it just felt like there was a lot of meetings about this film about what it was yeah. doing it just felt over um, over-executived. That's definitely mm. not a word, is it? Executived? Oh, it's better, a... better than the word I made up. But I, I, I definitely mean... <laughs> I like Julia Maybe Roberts. it is us who are the money monsters, Tom. <laughs> I like Julia Roberts in this. I, I think she she's somebody who I don't often pay attention to, but I think she has a fairly un flattering role as just, you know, the hard-done-by producer. But I, I think she actually does quite well in terms of how she sticks up for her, her character and kind of maintains a sense of calm and, and dignity uh, among everything that's going on. I mean, I think she is probably the actor who comes out best in this film. Yeah, I thought Clooney was okay. I mean, he played, it's George Clooney playing I George love, Clooney. I love Clooney, um, but I, I stopped paying attention to him in this. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, by it's, the numbers. Very, it's just so watery, yeah. just so anemic in that and last the, the part. the pair of them, because they've been on screen in previous films. There's there some, was a nice energy between them, I think. Yeah, and Not too that, much. Like, it wasn't overcooked. Yeah, they handled that well. Yeah. It doesn't fall into the kind of cliches that you might think a film like this would fall into. It um, didn't feel like a vehicle. Yeah, and, they, well, and they're actually hardly ever on screen together. A lot of it is just an audio link with, with her talking to his earpiece, and I actually quite like that technique. So yeah, there's a real there's a good chemistry between, between them, even though there's physical distance. 
I think this is a really, I think this is um, an aeroplane film. I think it's one of those films that's going to date. <laughs> it's it it already feels a little bit dated. Yeah. Just even in its style, like the opening, the opening few moments, there's this kind of media montage, and it just feels very zeitgeisty. That's definitely not a word. That's a word. What's happening? No, that's here? a word. Zeitgeisty. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it tries to do so many things. I mean, there's even a bit of Truman Show type stuff in here as well, with the focus of all the people glued to their TV and obsessed with with, with watching a very dangerous and real situation, but watching it as entertainment. It just feels like something that would have been relevant 12 months ago when they were probably polishing off the script. It feel, it's one of those films, I think, in the long term that we may hear this was a troubled production in some aspects because it certainly has that vibe to it. We've been talking about Money Monster. What a shame. Jodie Foster deserves better. I think she's a... I mean, obviously, she's a talented actor, but I think we still yet to see her, her true talents as a director, so I hope she gets a, a few more shots at it. Three, triple, ah. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the much-loved and palm door-winning 1964 film by the acclaimed left-bank director Jacques Demy. Now, from this Thursday, it will be screened for a limited season as part of Cinema Nova's Nova Iconic program. Starring Catherine Deneuve, the film is a romantic tragedy set in France in the late 1950s. But most significantly is that it formally functions as an opera, as every single line of dialogue is sung... Although the style of music by the legendary composer Michel Legrand is closer to jazz and the pop music of the era, as uh, we just heard. This is also a visually rich film with the bold and vibrant use of colour. I think Demi said it was a, it's a pop art opera, I think he described it. Look, there is a lot in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg to fall in love with, isn't there? Let's talk about Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> Speaking oh. of falling in love. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. And Was this early in her career? It or? is early. Yeah. It's not her first film by any stretch, but it is early. It's the film that really made her. Um, she is uh, just almost impossibly luminously beautiful in this film. She has that aura of real st- star yeah. in this film. E- like. Even if uh, the character she plays, Genevieve, uh, is belittled <laughs> for her looks by her mother. Yes. What a harrod in that woman. Her mother says, well, you're not the fairest, oh, but you're not what? ugly either. I mean, yeah. How do you get fairer than Catherine Deneuve? <laughs> Like, it's just is it even possible? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm just looking up a filmography. This this was the big first film of hers. But very soon after this, she went on to Repulsion and then Belle de Jour. So this was the start of an extraordinary career she for her. She did this before Repulsion. Yeah, that's right a, before. A year a, before. That's an interesting double. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Belle de Jour too. I mean, and all of yeah. them, her characters are quite complex mm. and, and suffer. <laughs> um, uh, and she's supposed to be 17 in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she still has that uh, some, the ingenue quality. Yep. Uh, she seems purer than the driven snow somehow, and there is driven snow, ultimately, <laughs> in this film. We wish to compare and, her to. Yeah, yes, we wish to compare <laughs> her to, sadly. Uh, this is such a tremendously moving film. It, 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 it is that really rare film which uh, hyper-stylization somehow doesn't in any way reduce the film's emotive power. Uh, certainly having every line of dialogue, even the most banal exchanges, sung to uh, extremely uh, affecting melodies doesn't um, uh, impinge upon that uh, aim to ultimately have you shattered by the end of this film. And it's uh, one of the most extraordinary things about it is that that ending being so shattering without giving anything away, it doesn't, it's, it's not necessarily anything truly appalling that 
happens to people it's just extremely moving and relatable even though this whole film seems to take place in a, a candy floss world a, a france in the 1950s that could never have been there could never have been anywhere that looked like this either the exteriors or the interiors and the interiors all look like something like um now what was that australian wallpaper woman's name uh, that gillian armstrong made a doc oh. about florence broadhurst was that yes, her name yes yeah if she had dropped some really good acid in the 50s let's say <laughs> She'd have been the one who did all the uh, decor in this film. It's just exquisite, but uh, vivid, and paisleys and pastels and patterns. and Pinks and oranges yeah, living in harmony. Somehow in harmony. <laughs> Occasionally garish, but it's still harmony. But it's just exquisitely beautiful. There's and a, gr- a very famous green wall in this mm. film that is probably my favourite green wall in any <laughs> film. I've just realised how insane that sounds, but I say it very sincerely. Also, probably one of my last final shots... Of any film ever, and I, I don't think it's a spoiler. It's just, mm. it's just a petrol yeah. sta- station in the snow. It's yeah. um, just exquisite. I, I could just watch that. Well, I often ponder what is sort of the take-home message of this film, and I don't think there is any single one message. But it sort of seems to be, you know, is it saying to us that that life never turns out exactly how we want, and, and you're choosing the second best option is still pretty good and you can still find happiness that way or is it a tragedy about the fact that it never works out exactly the way it should be i mean are our characters foolish what they rush into or 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 should they have maintained what they were rushing into previously i actually really like the kind of verisimilitude of this of that message Mm. which is just kind of get over it deal with it move on like you don't usually get that in a in a love in a, in a, in a well, musical anyway. I, mean, a musical I don't think it's romance. telling us to get over it and move on. No, no, no though, but you know what I mean. Like it's yeah. sort of like, well, life you know, does move. Shit on. happens, yeah. and and you just kind of keep moving, which is actually not a typical message that you get in these really kind of sweeping musicals. Yeah, like, there's it's all this remarkable. heightened romanticism, and yet it's quite fatalistic. It's yeah. a, there's a really odd tension between those two uh, poles that this film operates at and I guess that must be part of its magic because I don't know of any film that has ever been made that has quite this film's effect. It just really uh, destroys me every time I watch it in any context and you know, as it so happened last time I watched it, it was quite a while ago, it was with someone breaking up with more or less at the time and that was excruciating almost beyond measure. That's awful. Isn't it That's a horrible... It was actually just profoundly beautifully transcendentally miserable that's yeah <laughs> but this is <laughs> not a good film to watch when you're breaking up but i mean the first half hour or so of this film is just off the leash joy and pleasure and gorgeousness and i guess i even love the fact that in the first song which is in a garage where they're singing about can you work back late tonight and and can you change your oil on the mercedes there's one guy who mentioned he's going to the opera and another guy says don't like the opera movies are far better all that singing is really <laughs> annoying movies are better another guy then says you said that twice okay we get the message movies are better <laughs> It, it's so playful and fun on that level as well. I love the energy in this film. Just w- having seen it so many times, watching it again, I think that obviously the music and the and the set design and you know the nerve, these are the things that really leap out at you. But I was really struck by the sense of movement in this film. Um, yes. Watching it again, especially but when it slips into moments of stylization and goes. Just back. remarkable yeah. editing in this film. Two women. Um, I've got their names written down here: Anne Marie Cotre and Monique Tessieri. Like I'd never heard of these women before, but what like the once I kind of tuned in to what was going on with the editing in this film it's um just remarkable energy it 
to the way that this film just moves along. One of the great cliches of cinema is how do you depict sex happening without showing it, you know, literally, and there's always jokes about in films they used to edit to the rocking boat or the train going through the tunnel and all sorts of things like that. The, the three very quick shots they use in this film to indicate, you know, the couple are having sex are just exquisite. And, and I, I don't know who thought of that or what rationale it was to, to just show three exteriors, but they're beautiful exp- exteriors, you know, these empty spaces, just bang, bang, bang. I never noticed that before. I don't, And it kind of blew me away. I mean, this is one of those films you can watch over and over again and, and just fall in love with its gorgeousness every single time. Yeah, that's another one of these weird uh, contradictions in this film, that there are moments of just excess and, and gratuitousness and, uh, you know, the hyper-stylization, and then there are moments like that, as you're describing, Thomas, which are so economical. Uh, this film also ha- quite profoundly... Um, gives a sense of the horrors of war and how it damages people without showing any war. Uh, we don't get war scenes. We just get the uh, correspondences drying up. Um, we get someone finally coming back from the war and they're not themselves and they're, they're broken and, uh, and lashing out and falling into a downward spiral. And it's, it's really upsetting. Mm. And I think if there had been something, let's say some footage in a trench somewhere or something in the midst of all of this, it just it would have not worked. It would have been banal, um, whereas somehow the, both the joy and the misery in this film are just poeticised and, and the, all these tensions just play out perfectly, uh, ecstatically. I think that sense of distance and that disconnect to reality is so crucial to precisely what the film's kind of doing and how it's getting to it. We're talking a lot about how beautiful this film looks. I think it's probably worth mentioning the incredible story of its restoration Thanks to uh, Demi's wife and our queen, Agnes Varda. <laughs> yeah. his, Another brilliant uh, wife, filmmaker. Incredible mm. woman. Just what a celebrated her birthday, 89? Yeah, she, she outlived him then. by several decades, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, she's still trucking. But what a couple they would have been to hang out gosh. with in, in, in France in the 60s and 70s. Well, it also, it does bear mentioning <laughs> that he was queer and didn't come out till very late in life either. So uh, you, you can easily look back at this film and others of his and see that queer sensibility in there but to all the world at the time this came out and for many years hence no one twigged mm. and I think the Vada and Demi kept that you know, quite close to themselves for a long time but uh, it's curious because I mean she made such a beautiful doco about him later on uh, Jaco Denant and um, uh, about his childhood and how that influenced his love of film, how he was just a, a film-mad kid who was always going to make films, but always very somehow childlike films, always with this beautiful, dreamy childishness, whether he's making fairy tales like Donkey Skin, also oh, with gosh, Catherine Deneuve, amazing. which is that's exquisite. Amazing. Or the the sequel to Umbrella's Young Girls of Rochefort. I don't know, did Varda have anything to do with restoring that too, or was Umbrella's got all the the love at first from her. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not mm. sure. Oh, look, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, yeah. she is a sort of force into her own in terms of restoring her own work, and she adored his work. Yeah. Um, Just the savviness of him knowing that Eastman would deteriorate over time, that that foresight of his to... I'm, I'm not... You guys might know the, might know the details more than yeah, I do, but he, mm. he, he mm. did something like he, he separated the colours onto black and white films so that they could later be... Yeah, the three-strip yeah, technicolour. Yeah, the technicolour process, but, yep. which meant that in the, in the 90s, I think it was, Vada our queen could yep. come along and um, <laughs> and weave the magic and put this beautiful film back together because it pops like the version that's out now just yeah. just explodes off the screen it just and um 
extraordinary. We've been talking a bit about, you know, the, the, there's definitely a critique of France's involvement in the Algerian war here in the way, you know, young men were conscripted at the prime of their life. And as his film showed us, this, this is a man who had everything going for him and he got sent off to fight this ridiculous colonial war. Um, and there is a real economy to the film and, um, um, and I think sort of fatalistic feel to the whole thing and I, I guess that's why Jacques Demy was still embraced by people like Goddard and Truffaut who are especially Goddard who was a very hardcore serious ideological filmmaker and at first it doesn't make sense because I don't think you could call Jacques Demy a, a French New Wave member even though he was around at the same time but you know he did make these lush Hollywood-inspired musicals and, and melodramas but I think he still maintained the same politics as the more hardliners. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, there's definitely a, a whole different aesthetic to what he was doing here and later on. Um, and Goddard kept mutating around this time anyway and then got harder and harder, left more and more radicalised. Before it became insufferable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that didn't take many years, as it turned out, actually. <laughs> five. We still love uh, Goddard, but... Jeez. Yeah, it's about 30, 30 or 40 <laughs> years. That should be our tagline. <laughs> yeah. We still yeah. love Goddard, but jeez. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's getting a limited release at Cinema Nova starting from this Thursday. Do try to track it down. Cerise, you look like you want to jump uh, in with look, the final point. I mean, I, well, my final point is just to reinforce the fact that there's just so much love in this room for it. It's, it's, I know there are films that we all agree upon as being worthy or rather good or occasionally even classics, but I think this film is just one of the all-time greats. I just want to gush as much as I can before we start talking about a Scorsese film I'm less fond of. <laughs> <laughs> can I jump in and say this week I accidentally referred to it as the umbrellas of cyborg and i think it might be the funniest thing i've ever said i would like to see that three triple You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We had a phone call from London. Ian from London called just to remind us that The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the middle part of a trilogy. Uh, we, we, we just didn't get to mention that, but that is absolutely correct. In fact, the character I mentioned before, Roland Cassard, he, that character and actor began in the first film, Lola, who then makes an appearance in the second one. I think Jacques Demy did it a bit. His characters and actors kind of move between films. It's very French and of the times, intertextuality, all that. Yes, Mm. Yeah, and um, uh, the, the, the girls are Rockfort being the mm. the third. Oh, it was Rockfort the cheese. I get the cheese mixed <laughs> up with the place. The, uh, the Ro- young Russell girls Paul. of cheese. Ah. Yeah. I was doing so well, I've ruined it. Let's look <laughs> at our final film for tonight here on Plato's Cave. Now, in conjunction with the excellent Scorsese exhibition currently on at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, we've been looking at some of the less talked about films by Martin Scorsese that they've been screening. Tonight we're going to revisit Casino. This is Scorsese's 1995 film about Las Vegas in the 1970s. It was Scorsese's third film about gangsters and saw him reunited with his Goodfellas screenwriter, uh, Nicholas Pileggi, who was also a crime journalist. And the casino tells a fictionalised version of real events about mob involvement in the casino business. It stars Scorsese regulars Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci as two childhood friends with a very different and often conflicting perspective on how to capitalise on what Las Vegas has to offer. The supporting cast includes James Woods, Don Rickles, awesome, Kevin Pollock, and Sharon Stone in an Academy Award-nominated role that at the time was very much considered a significant departure from the supposedly lightweight part she had been known for before then. 
Uh, how, how did what? I'm curious to know what you thought of Casino at the time and what you f- feel about it now. Because I remember there was a little bit of cynicism when it came out about being just a, a rehash of, of Goodfellas and, and the same old. And people were also very critical of the violence in this film as well. I, um, Do you remember that buzz at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a really strong bias for Vegas movies. I got married in Vegas. I love Vegas. I, I by don't... Elvis? <laughs> no, oddly enough, by my mate Ange, who lives in Melbourne. Um, she was our wedding celebrant. That's and awesome. she she was in Vegas when they exploded, when they were filming this film. Oh, wow. She's okay. like a Vegas expert. Hi, Ange, if you're listening. She was in <laughs> Vegas. You know, at the end, of the, there's a big casino that... that blows up or something i can't remember yes we see a casino yeah, being yeah, demolished yeah. that yeah. was that was one of the old one of the old that, casinos that was and she was that yeah. Was, and she, yeah she's that good she was there and she saw that happen so she was there when they were filming so filming there's a little that. bit of so documentary footage in yeah, this yeah it's sort film. of very much of its time and i think that's a fair thing to say about this film more generally she says trying to steer the conversation <laughs> yeah, back to the movie. i love watching vegas on film even even with that in mind i think that the first half hour 40 minutes of this film is amazing I never saw it when it came out, and I uh, wasn't quite prepared for it to be three hours long when I watched it just uh, over a couple of nights recently. I'd seen bits of it on TV before without ever tuning in, thinking, oh, we'll just wait sometime. It's on at the cinema. In the end, I ended up watching it at home because I needed to to do some radio. And, uh, look, I actually enjoyed it, uh, but uh, I did have that sense of... uh, Even now, this is 20 years after its release, it still feels quite Goodfellas-y, really. Goodfellas was just so spot on that this one does seem a bit rehashish. Um, I haven't seen Goodfellas again for many years, but I, I enjoyed this, but I'm still not quite sure what Sharon Stone did to get an Oscar. I mean, I think she's quite strong, but some of the... Act, it just felt rang a false note for me. Her As she got more and more hysterical, as she became more and more drug-addled and uh, unhinged, I didn't actually quite ring true for me. I'm not quite sure why. I felt a bit uh, distanced from the film, maybe through its hyper-stylization, which weirdly is exactly what works for Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but for Casino didn't work so much for me. But then I guess Vegas is just an, uh, a hyper-stylized place in and of itself. I've never set foot in there. I've seen it on screen a few times, but I, I'm not drawn into that world especially, uh, except for when watching California Split not so long ago. Not Vegas necessarily, but that whole gambling world. Small-time gamblers they're fun to to go through a movie with but gangsters running the show even if they're going to get a comeuppance eventually i don't know it doesn't pull me in to quite the same extent i think there's some really big i'm i think people kind of thought this at the time not just the the parallels to goodfellas and that it was like an easy win for him but also there's just a couple of formal misfires i think in this film firstly the, the length and i know that's probably an obvious thing to say about a scorsese films because they all go forever Except for, I think, After Hours, which is like 90 minutes. But you, tend not, you like, tend not to notice the running time in Scorsese. Yeah, it's like day, I don't day five. You know, like, they're pretty long movies. Um, is this <laughs> his longest film? It'd have to be up. It well, feels Wolf it. Wall Street was long too, it wasn't feels it? Yeah. The casino's almost three hours. Yeah. yeah. And I don't mind... I mean, I'm sounding like a, a kind of ignoramus, but, I mean, I don't mind long films, but you don't want to feel like they're dragging. And this film really does feel like it starts to drag, I think, around that sort of hour 20, hour and a half mark. There's a couple of... Just weird. There's some couple of weird editing, and I, I, lo- I love the Thelma. I'm pro-Thelma. But there's a couple of weird little editing choices that are, in retrospect, a little unusual i think that you know kind of weird to look at now that it's so many years after that film came out they might have been quite um i don't know quite catchy or pithy at the time but they certainly feel very dated now well a lot of it's the editing style is not that 
dissimilar to The Age of Innocence, which was the film he made before that, which we discussed last night. So you've got those that, that the use of dissolves and, 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 and fades and um, the sort of close-ups on all the objects in the room to create the environment. And we didn't we didn't mention this last week, but his use of overexposure in his cinematography, there's a real glowing feel to it, which I think really works with the slightly surreal, otherworldly vibe of Casino. Um, and, and I, I think... I think it's really rough that it does get compared to Goodfellas. It's so inevitable, but I think it stands up on its own. And I think where Goodfellas was sort of a strangely kind of nostalgic and demythologising of the gangster film, I think this this feels like a kind of exposing the seediness of Las Vegas film. And that's possibly why the violence is so confronting, because it's showing us this is what has built this city, this is what's... Uh, underneath it all, I mean, you know, there is such a callous regard for for human life in this. So, I really dug it, and it, it reminded me actually of long form television. It did remind me of being yeah, watching definitely. three episodes of The Sopranos together, and Casino and Goodfellas are very much precursors to The Sopranos, and and a lot of actors who became regulars in The Sopranos appear in in Casino. Um, I thought Stone was great. I really like Sharon Stone in this, and I think the the kind of the, the and they do form a love triangle. The, t- the dynamic between her, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro—it's such classic Scorsese bravado rise. I hit the sweet spot when everything's going well for them. And Scorsese doesn't let his characters go out in a blaze of glory. They all go out in this rather kind of pathetic, depressing way. I mean, all three of those characters, and they all kind of let's say, exit the film in different ways, but it's all really disappointing, bland, and a little bit sordid and, and, and pathetic. And that's very much a Scorsese thing in most of his films. I think it's worth pointing out, too, that this, like Goodfellas, is based on real people yeah, and, and yeah. real things that happened. And I think, for me, that's that's kind of what's so striking about Sharon Stone's character in particular is that it's so exploitative. Like, they really... If you read up about Jerry McGee, the real woman that she was based on, the differences that they've made between the, the you know they've really just um added some spice to to that character and to kind of present her in a much more negative way i think that's actually quite oh, really? a little okay. bit icky actually um she's an interesting character because yeah you kind of encouraged to love her bravado and her kind of very loose morals i suppose and her hustling ability but as the film goes on she becomes more self-destructive and mm-hmm. i think it's an interesting portrayal of how she's sort of half this trophy trophy wife who has had all her her strength pluck from her but um, I'm mixing metaphors in a weird way here but but she also is sort of you know she brings about her own downfall in many ways as well and there's also the stuff about she has a history of abuse and so she kind of has this self-destructive streak as well. I think it, it just I mean the the Jerry McGee um, wasn't a sex worker like the Sharon Stone character was she was a mum she had many children I think she had three or four children in real life and this film doesn't present her as perhaps the best mother in the world she died in a similar way yeah really um like a really sad story but yeah the choices made to me just feel a little bit exploitative and i think that stone plays that i think she she plays the character that she's been given but see i think that's okay because the film does say this is a fictionalized account of real events and they change the name and it's it it, it is a different character who's vaguely based on a real person it just i don't know just feels a bit there are a lot of costume changes and all of the changes good music yeah yeah always with scorsese good music (laughs) and the constant narration too well, this is such an odd film, in fact, to be narrated yeah. by two uh, characters and, and they their narration sort of bounces off one another, almost as if acknowledging one another's narration, but that doesn't make sense. In fact, I don't quite know what sense this approach takes other than in 
for the purposes of moving the narrative along. But in terms of it being anyone's recollections, let's say, it doesn't make sense. But that's fine. I mean, it's um, it's all fun. The narrations are quite um, wise, uh, knowing about what's to come, what has come, what is inevitable. But look, I'm, I'm not the... It's probably clear I'm not half as enthusiastic about this film as, as you two are, and I think, Thomas, you're easily the most enthusiastic of us all. Yeah, I, I give the thumbs up for Casino. I think it's up there with his, his other strong work in the, in the 90s. We have to wind tonight's episode show of Plato's Cave up. Uh, Money Monster is on general release through Sony Pictures. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is screening at Cinema Nova from this Thursday for a limited Nova iconic season. Go to cinemanova.com.au for details. And Casino is screening at the Australian Centre for the moving image as part of the essential Scorsese selected by David Stratton program. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Uh, that's all for us tonight. Good night. Or as they say in the Umbrellas for Cherbourg, Bon nuit, madame. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.